0: Today's episode is presented by public Public public.com has just launched its new high yield cash account offering an industry leading 5.1% APY, no fees, no subscription, and no minimums or maximums. That means you can grow your cash with 5.1% interest with no strings attached. It's as simple as that. Again, that is 5.1% interest with no fees. 5.1% 5.1% interest with no subscription, 5.1% interest with no minimums or maximums, and 5.1% interest with up to $5 million of FDIC insurance. Just 5.1% interest, straight up, no strings attached. Sign up today at public.com backslash money. This is a paid endorsement for public.com, 5.1% APY as of December 20th, 2023, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description. High-yield cash accounts are available for U.S. members only. Welcome to Chit Chat Stocks. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer analyze businesses and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Stocks is a
1: CCM media group podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Stocks by Ryan, Brett, or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome into Chit Chat Stocks. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm joined as always by Ryan Henderson. Today is our Wednesday episode. And I think we have a fun one for everyone. As you may have known, or for anyone that's followed the show since the beginning of the year, we have changed up our format for the Wednesday episodes, and we're mixing it up. Don't worry. We are still doing our traditional stock analysis episodes. I've been researching Elf Beauty. We'll be doing that one. I think it'll come out two weeks from today. Ryan is researching DreamFinders Homes or... What did you nail down there for us, Ryan?
0: I have been researching DreamFinders homes, but I was also looking at genius sports. So a little torn between the two. I think I'll decide probably in the next week. It's one of those two.
1: All right. Beautiful. But for some of these episodes, we're trying to mix things up. And during earnings season, we think at least once a quarter, maybe even twice a quarter, depending on how important some of these earnings are. We're going to go through stuff that we own, stuff that's on the watch list. For kind of disclosure for everyone, we run fairly concentrated. Personally, we own about five to 10 stocks, maybe a little bit more as we build out our portfolios. And we have a watch list of about 20 to 30 companies, I'd say. So we're going to pick some that either is on the watch list or we actually own. And for anyone that saw the title, we're going to do five stocks that we'd buy right now. So some of these we own, some of these we don't. Three of them are going to be from Ryan. Two of them are going to be from me. We're going to have a 10-minute timer on the presentation and update so we can get done with this in an efficient manner and have some fun discussion questions. For each company, again, we will disclose whether we own shares as of this recording, but any of these companies we may buy in the future. So if we sound biased to the bullish side on the business, we probably are. You should always do your own research and jump by buy just because we're talking about this on a podcast. Before we get started, if you enjoy Chit Chat Stocks, give us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. That is the best way to support and help a free show such as ours throw and then subscribe to our newsletter called Chit Chat Stocks to get all our show notes and the link to that will be in this podcast show notes or you can search it on a substack. Lastly, thank you to our sponsors, public.com and FinChat io okay five stocks we'd buy today first one is ryan discussing good old coupon i own shares i'll let ryan disclose if he owns shares and what his plan is for that later but i see that we're running up on three minutes here in the recording so ryan you have 10 minutes let's get started
0: yeah and it's gonna be i think the way we're doing this is it's gonna try to be a five minute elevator pitch, and then leave an extra five minutes for discussion between the two of us. So I'm going to kick things off. I think my timer is going now. First company I'm talking about, as you mentioned, is Kupong. For those of you that are not familiar with this business at all, Kupong is the leading e-commerce provider in South Korea. They are sometimes referred to as the Amazon of South Korea. Now, I know a lot of companies get that tag that maybe don't deserve it, Jumia, uh, I've I've heard called the Amazon of Africa before, it can be dangerous to associate or give a company that analogy because then you start to think, oh, it's going to have returns like Amazon. But in this case, I think the model of coupon, the actual business model, it resembles an early Amazon almost to a T. And frankly, it seems like the founder here, Bom Su Kim, who owns a ton of the stock and he still runs the company today, he, uh, he's copied Amazon, basically. Now, in the early days, it was meant to be more of a Groupon-style business, but I'm going to talk about the, what the business has become today. They are, like I said, an e-commerce platform that's home to 20 million active customers, and those customers, on average, spend $100 a month, roughly, or $1.2,000 a year on Coupon's platform. What are they spending that money on? Pretty much anything. Coupons platform sells items ranging from fresh groceries to electronics or apparel, and those items are sometimes first party uh merchandise, so stuff that coupon makes themselves, or items from third party merchants, which is just think about it, you know, the the local Apple supplier in Korea uh can build their third party site on coupon and, and tap into a massive uh buyer base of 20 million active customers where they can sell apples. So pretty simple. That part functions a lot like Amazon. And here's the best part. coupon has spent the better part of a decade now building out a really robust fulfillment network. Today, they have 47 million square feet of logistics and fulfillment center space. That's equivalent to 816 football fields for our American listeners that are trying to put that into context. Um, and that puts more than 70% of South Korea's population within seven miles of a coupon Logistics Center. So Coupang is able to deliver an incredible 99.3% of its orders within 24 hours. Similar to Amazon Prime, Coupang also has a subscription service, which it calls Rocket Wow. Right now, it costs the equivalent of $4 a month to subscribe to this, but this is... Free shipping on all items, and it gives members things like dawn delivery. Which this is the part where I was hearing about coupon sounded kind of cool, and then this kind of unlocked it for me. How valuable the service can be! If you order select items on dawn delivery, which you get as a member of the Rocket Wild membership, order them before midnight, you can get them delivered to your door before seven a.m. So that. Speaks to the population density of South Korea and the fulfillment capabilities of Coupon's business. There's also like free returns and stuff like that where they'll come by and they'll pick up a bag so you just put it outside your door and they can come and grab it. There are currently around 11 million Rocket Wow subscribers. For context, the entire South Korean population is around 52 million. Uh, but beyond its core retail business, Coupon also has some other initiatives, uh, things like I would say the most important here is probably coupon logistics. This is their this allows the merchants to tap into their delivery network. So I think it's only 4% of units are currently sold using fulfillment by coupon. But as this grows, it should add, it should be margin accretive or boost the profit margin on the core retail business as more and more merchants start paying for services like this. There's also Coupon Eats, Coupon Pay, Coupon Play. These are like video streaming, payments app, all that kind of stuff. Um, these are, I kind of call them side bets, but they also help increase the value of the Rocket Wow membership because you get discounts on Coupon Eats, you get access to Coupon Play, which is that streaming video service. Uh, and it just as a whole kind of builds more value around the ecosystem, much like a Prime video service or... a Amazon Prime service, I should say. Run through the numbers though. What What am I out on my timer? Do you have a look on it? Four minutes. Okay. Perfect. I'm on time. So Coupon today has a market cap of $26 billion. They had a huge IPO. Actually, IPO at a really good time and raised a bunch of cash. So about $5 billion in cash on the balance sheet and less than a billion dollars in debt. However, they recently acquired Farfetch or Technically, it was like a bridge loan, kind of a complex transaction, but some of that cash is going to leave the balance sheet. So I would estimate around $22 to $23 billion enterprise value. Now, when we look at the earnings of the this business, they have turned the corner towards profitability. They were investing really heavily. A lot of the cash they generated from the IPO into expanding that fulfillment network, but they're starting to really see the profits come in. Free cash flow was $1.8 billion over the last 12 months. However, they when customers pay coupon, coupon holds the cash before they give it back out to the merchants. So they're sitting on a lot of cash that doesn't actually belong to them. Now they can earn interest on that. However, it is not theirs. So you're going to see a big discrepancy between the cash flow and the gap numbers. I think probably the best metric here to use is more of a net operating profit after taxes, which I think could be in the ballpark of 5%. Right now, they're generating about 8% to 9% free cash flow margins. Management has said that they think they can get to about 10% adjusted EBITDA margins. Ultimately, I'm kind of baking in a conservative case here that 5% net operating profits after taxes seems achievable. If they grew revenue by 10% a year for the next five years, which seems very doable. They have a huge logistics advantage. And I think I think that more and more people are going to come to them. More and more people are going to spend money on the platform that are already there. That would put them at about 30, just over $30 billion in revenue, almost $2 billion in net operating profits. I think any sort of reasonable multiple that you apply there, you're going to get probably a double in the stock price. And in my opinion, there's a lot more upside to the revenue case there. It seems like they could grow revenue a lot quicker but just wanted to be conservative there. I guess just in terms of headline numbers, they do trade at 43 times EV to EBIT. So it is the free cash flow multiple isn't little misleading. You still have to believe that this business is going to grow at a pretty healthy clip.
1: Okay. I'll first question, do you own shares right now?
0: Yes. Coupon is my second largest holding. Uh not sure what percentage of the portfolio that makes up currently but second largest holding and i've actually been it's one of my recent buys it hasn't i haven't bought them in quite a while but it's uh i am and would buy at this price
1: okay and i guess another discussion question would be what are the key well kpis that you look at when reading a coupon earnings release? Is it some sort of margins, active customers? What are maybe the top three you're looking at every quarter is to show whether the business is getting better, mode is widening, all that good stuff? Uh,
0: So active customers, net revenue per active customer, because they actually have a really good, what's the term that they call it? i can't remember there's like a specific term that they always refer to where it's like how much people spend once they get activated on the service, and it looks really good oh, for them co- cohort 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 analysis, analysis. Yeah. yeah uh great cohort trends where once people get on the service they start spending a lot of money, they realize the value and it just tends to go up and to the right they they spend more and more money, so net revenue per active active customers, and then I keep an eye on gross margins because I'm okay with them investing throughout the income statement, like the operating expenses. I really want to make sure that gross margin is staying relatively high or maybe expanding because that's going to drive the rest of the profit, uh, profit margins, whatever you want to pick, whether it's adjusted EBITDA, uh, which I don't think is that useful. But. Operating income, all that stuff it's going to be driven by the improvements on the cost of revenue side, which, as they're fulfilling more and more orders within that within their existing routes, it should continue to improve the gross margins should so I keep an eye on gross margins, free cash flow obviously as well, and then uh any other tidbits they give us because frankly they are a little opaque, they're a little vague sometimes they don't try to give out all their details around some of the side bets so uh, I try to take what I can get, but active customers, net revenue proactive, and gross margins.
1: Yes, most companies would do some sort of conference call with analysts if they bought out a failing online competitor, or not even competitor, but online-adjacent company like Farfetch, but Coupon has been fairly tight-lipped except for a pretty vague press release. Last question, as we wrap up on our little time schedule here. What are your thoughts on their expansion to Taiwan?
0: I like it from what I understand so far. And they've actually been very cautious about investing into or expanding into other geographies. It seems like they have a lot of the same kind of population density benefits. Um, And the other part is they are now, it's it's an automatic win for Taiwanese merchants, right? If you want to ship products, you can now do it to 20 million active customers. So it's an instant like uh, pool of customers for these Taiwanese merchants. They have in the past expanded into operations and then cut it out. I think they launched a store in Japan at one time. They have gone into other markets as well. And they, they're like, we're testing the waters. If it doesn't work, we're gonna cut our investments. They've been testing the waters with tai, uh, Taiwan and they seem to be saying, we're excited about the opportunity here. We're gonna keep investing. So kind of a wait and see approach, but I, I'd be optimistic if they're seeing positive trends there. All right, I think that's it, yeah. That's it for me. Okay, let's uh let's move to your stock of the day, your first stock. Ally financial. Let me get my timer up here, ready to go. Let's uh let's hear the elevator pitch.
1: Okay. Yeah. So as a disclosure, I do not own shares as of this moment, but could see myself buying in the near future. It's definitely one on the top five of my watch list that as I build out the portfolio, I could buy shares. But Ally Financial is a simple business model. It is a consumer bank. So they have two sides that we need to understand before we get into why I think the shares look fairly cheap. They have the attracting of depositors, and then they have making loans. So the the assets versus the liabilities. Ally attracts deposits as an online-only bank with higher interest rates than the traditional banks over at Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, blah, blah, blah. It goes after younger millennial type customers. For example, it currently offers a 4.35% APY on its online savings account, which is much higher than the national average, and it is able to do so because it is an online-only bank with no physical locations, which saves them on a lot of overhead costs versus someone such as Bank of America. It currently has, for reference, for the size of the business, about 3 million deposit customers and $142 billion in retail deposits. So they're not as large as the big banks, but they're much, much larger than a lot of these neo bank these upstarts, these, I'm not saying upstart the company, but you know, Even someone like SoFi is significantly smaller, even though they're growing quite quickly. And Ally is not a hyper grower, but they've consistently grown their deposits and depositors over the last 15 years since they started operating independently after the Great Financial Crisis when the assets or the entity was spun out of GM Financial. We don't need to go into that today, but then it became an independent bank, Ally Financial. So speaking of GM, on the lending side, Ally focuses on making consumer automotive loans. It has relationships with a lot of dealers, even providing them with loans themselves for you know, franchises, all the dealerships, floor loans, blah, blah, blah. And that relationships allows them to give them priority on a lot of the automotive loans that come through their door. At the end of last quarter, they had $84.7 billion in automotive loans on the balance sheet. And that is the most important part of the loan book. Ally is, if we're going to the stock here, it's off 36% from all-time highs, which honestly, when I looked at that, not as far down as I would have thought, given the perception around the company. And it is down so much because of the headwinds it is facing both in the automotive lending side and consumer banking side. So on depositors, the higher interest rates from the Fed has made it so Ally had to raise the interest rate of paid to depositors. This increases their costs because you know you have to pay your depositors a lot more, team around. And then on the automotive lending side, Ally has three things hurting it. Lower interest rate auto loans from the 2020-2022 vintages, so those kind of three-year periods. They're still sitting on the balance sheet with low interest rates, so they still have to pay their depositors high interest rates. They have reducing car prices and then increasing charge off rates in their automotive loans. So that's hurting the recovery prices, or excuse me, the recovery value when loans go bad. And, you know, if, Loans aren't performing as well. Well, there's going to be a headwind compared to the last few years. So this is causing their net interest margin. And now we're going into banking terms, but that's basically one of the most important numbers for a bank. It's one of the key, you know, data points I track every quarter, looking at the stock. And that is the spread versus what they pay to depositors compared to what they're earning on their loans. That has gone down from four percent compressed to three point two percent in just you know, five or six quarters, very, very stark compression. And this is because Ally is facing, you know, the Federal Reserve going from zero to 5% quite rapidly. But even with this bad setup, or excuse me, with this, you know, these bad trailing results over the last 18 months, I really think Ally is a good setup here from here. Because you have their net interest margin headwinds that should abate in 2024. The loan book gets refreshed because of the automotive loans every two to three years, meaning once we get two to three years away from the interest rate hiking cycle, it won't have any headwinds from the Federal Reserve hiking rates. We're already one year in, essentially, like the Fed raised a tiny bit in 2023, but not nearly as much as 2022. So this will allow earnings to grow again as their loan book reprices, but they don't have to grow the interest rate they pay to depositors. So we should see net interest margins expand. Another reason I like the business is they have a proven playbook in attracting more depositors. And this consistently, excuse me, consistency, I think gives it a huge runway for reinvestment that can lead to an expanding mode as they get more and more economies of scale and really separate themselves from a lot of these online banks. I also think the dealer relationships give them a competitive advantage. They they provide insurance to these places, you know, At the end of the day, a car loan is sort of a commodity, but if they get first dibs, I think that helps given their whole holistic relationship with all these places. And then I like their culture of conservatism and returning capital to shareholders. They have a nice dividend payout and have grown their dividend per share at an impressive rate since going public. Buybacks are also utilized when they have the capital available, which is not today, but should be over the next year or two, getting started up again. And they've reduced shares outstanding by 37% in the last 10 years. And frankly, to wrap things up, I think the stock is cheap. When you look at the trailing earnings, we're at a PE of around 12. But I think Ally is severely under-earning at the moment at a market cap of $11 billion. I really think they could be trading at, you know, a two- to three-year forward earnings ratio of around 5 um, because in you know in 2021, for reference, or at least at their peak earnings, they were getting close to about $3 billion in net income. I don't know if they're going to get back to that anytime soon, just because the pandemic period was a little bit of a Goldilocks period. It wasn't going to be replicable. But I think they can get back to $2 billion once these headwinds abate. Um, other stuff, key risks. I mean, it's a bank. It could blow up, right? The loans could be bad. I'm not an expert. I uh, reading Financials I'm not Buffett, although he's in this company. Uh, I just have the three to four KPIs I look at and think if they're underpriced. I have another risk being that the management team has left recently. I think it's that's the biggest concern for me, because it's unknown why they're leaving the CEO left to go to a very attractive job in the automotive industry at running a large dealership company. so <laughs> I don't know what to think about that, but something to keep an eye on for sure, and then there's also the fact that the car lending market could be much worse than we think where you read all those reports about how it's a ticking time bomb, and those videos end up being correct. I don't believe those videos are correct because Ally has done fine and still earned a billion dollars last year while facing a used car price, or excuse me, a used car market where prices were falling what like fifteen percent, and they're guiding. For them to fall another, I believe nine percent this year. So yeah, I think that sums it up. Ryan, any questions?
0: Well, about two minutes long, but you hit some of the discussion questions, anyways. So there were some questions from Twitter about this. Uh, We told them we'd be talking about Ally, and they sent in some questions. So maybe we'll try to hit on some of those. I think maybe let's just try to contextualize the executive. Exodus a little more. Is this the biggest concern? Like, if you had to guess why they're leaving, what would it be? And would this ever keep you out?
1: Okay. I think the CFO leaving, my hunch is that they were fired because they did a bad job in 2022 and and 2021 when you kind of looked at when they got fired. Um, and they they realized that that they made some bad decisions that year that has led to the underperformance over the last few quarters. I think the CEO has been around with them for a long time and he wanted to get through this tough period, but he had this opportunity I, I don't know if that was really like he's trying to get out of a terrible situation. What would keep me away is if a new CEO came in or this new CFO or some of the other important places at a bank. For the executive suite. If they came in and now say sometime this year, they end up leaving, that would be a big concern for me, if you get what I mean there. Yeah, makes sense.
0: Uh, Let's do one more question here. Someone asked, are you at all discouraged at the lower buybacks the past 12 to 18 months, given the lower price? Is this a structural disadvantage of banking that when your stock is depressed, you're unable to deploy capital in buying back stock efficiently?
1: I think you can make that argument, but this last period was maybe an extreme example of what that could be for for a bank, where I don't think the the, the volatility of the business cycle for specifically the sector they're in is going to be that extreme going forward. It was more of a generational event with the, how car prices reacted during the pandemic with all the shortages and all that good stuff. And I think they're going to be able to start buying back in 2024. Yeah, it would have been optimal for them to keep it on the, the balance sheet, but if you look at some of the charts I'll have for the newsletter, if we look at Q4 2024, they're projected to have only 16% of their loan book at 2021 and prior. And then their FICO scores have gone up at a good amount, I guess, to over seven at about 707. Now, so their credit quality is getting better, they're getting past the potentially poor performing loans by the end of this year, and I think they're going to be able to buy back stock again. Yeah, could the stock be? at 40 to 50 dollars instead of the 25 dollars it was at in 2023 sure but i don't think you can price them with a bank like that they get sometimes they have to build capital they're worried about the the Basel 3 stuff that could potentially make them you know be more capitalized so i think they'll get through that they'll buy back when they can What I think would be more of a concern is if they just had a culture of bad capital returns, which I think they understand how to drive shareholder value, and that's more important at the end of the day. All
0: right. right. That is about 11 minutes. So shall we hop to uh, (laughs) a third company
1: for the day? Yeah. Ryan's been very prickly about the timing of these for a little behind-the-scenes look. We're
0: trying (laughs) trying to do like an elevator pitch, you know? We want it to be... (laughs) On the clock. Oh, Before we move on, we want to talk about our friends at FinChat.io. FinChat.io is the complete stock research platform for fundamental investors. Beyond having all the standard financial data for companies around the globe, they also have company-specific segments and KPIs on over 1,500 stocks. So if you want to see Amazon's AWS revenue over the last 10 years, or you want to track match groups paying users, maybe you're curious how many stores Sprouts Farmers Market added last quarter. FinChat tracks all those KPIs and literally half a million more. We know that if you're a fundamental investor, you probably track this stuff yourself, but this saves so much time and it has all the data you already need. If you aren't sure where to go, you can also simply ask FinChat. That is their conversational AI powered by FinChat's proprietary data. So that'll save you tons and tons of time researching. They've got stock screening tool. They've got fundamental charting that is best in class in terms of design. I use FinChat every day. I absolutely love the platform. Brett does as well. We both use it as our primary dashboard and the place where we do all our research. So if you want to get 25% off any paid plan, use our link finchat.io chitchat. That is finchat.io slash chitchat. The link will also be in our
1: show notes. All right. Harbor Diversified I don't know if, is the...
0: good. I don't know if listeners will care whether or not we're on the clock. It would be cool if we could do like a countdown graphic on Riverside here, you know, if that's possible. Uh, yeah,
1: Riverside, if you're listening, that actually would be a very fun tool. I think a lot of people would utilize a little, little graphic like that, and they're quite good. So, yeah, let's let that happen. But I will start the timer. Harbor Diversified Very unique company. Maybe I'll give the disclosure before we even get through it because this one is a microcap. It is thinly traded. So don't go hopping in there thinking like, look, it's one you have to have experience, I think, with how microcaps work. And it is an extremely risky company. And I will say that you probably shouldn't buy it. We're probably done buying it. It hasn't worked yet. But Ryan, as that lead-in to discourage people, why... Uh, do we both own harbor diversified
0: yeah there, there are some like beyond just the risks associated with like buying a micro cap there are some actual like there's some actual friction so you know you're probably going to have to pay commissions uh depending on who your broker is like i buy with schwab and they get their commission free on everything else but with otc Highly liquid ones, there's going to be commissions. So just kind of think about that as well. You're going to have to buy a lot of shares to kind of make it, to make sure there's not like too much trading costs associated with it. But with that said, yeah, diverse, Harbor Diversified is a little bit weird. This is not typically the kind of thing I invest in. And I'll start right out and say it's not a great business by any means. So I'm not investing in it because of any sort of lasting competitive advantage or anything like that. This is a $90 million market cap company that I think is attractive purely because of its valuation. And $90 million is a little misleading. So I'll talk about that in a second. But first, let's go through, let's give some actual context around the business. So, Harbor Diversified is the parent company of Air Wisconsin. Air Wisconsin is a regional air carrier that operates routes to 36 cities, all departing from or arriving at Duals International. So that's or O'Hare. So it's Washington DC or Chicago. While I don't love the airline business, I do think regional air carriers are at least a little better because they aren't quite as asset intensive. They don't have to pay for the fuel. They don't have to find the flyers. They're kind of a contractor in a way. It's maybe the term to use. Uh, They're a partner of the bigger airlines. So here's the way the business model works. Air Wisconsin They used to have an agreement with United Airlines, but that has since expired, and they signed a new deal with American Airlines to fly exclusively on their behalf until 2028. This means Air Wisconsin is responsible for providing the aircraft and the crew necessary to conduct the flight, while American, in this case, designs the routes, sells the tickets, and pays for the fuel, among other costs. Let's get to the valuation. Maybe I should actually give some history here as well. Harper Diversified was basically three guys, I think, that either went to Ivy League schools or the Canadian equivalent, and they wanted to make a quick profit. And in 2011, they bought out this failing biotech company for – I can't even remember how much. It was tiny. And the the failing biotech was called Harbor Diversified. And they had some net operating losses. So these guys came in, they bought it out, and they stopped – I can't remember what the process is like, but they stopped filing. So you were not able to buy the stock anymore. It wasn't publicly traded. 10 years later, someone came along and figured out that Harbor Diversified had – that Shell had bought Air Wisconsin and that it was a fully functional airline. And so they registered. I think they sued that the Harbor Diversified had to start refiling again. So they came – it went – It went dark as a failing biotech and came public as a functional regional airline. So it had this huge jump up if you look at the stock price, and it'll kind of be confusing, but that's why it happened. But anyways, let's talk numbers. As I mentioned earlier, they've got a quoted market cap of $90 million, but they have some preferred stock that if we assume it gets converted, their fully diluted market cap comes out to $124 million. Remember that number. 124 million. They've had, or they had, $52 million in debt, but it looks like they just paid all of that down early. So, with that paid off, their net cash on hand stands at about just over $100 million. That leaves Harbor Diversify with an enterprise value of $18 million. I know some of these numbers might get confusing, but just remember this enterprise value, $18 million. What do you get for the $18 million enterprise value? Well, you get for starters, Harbor Diversified owns sixty-four planes. The average age of the fleet is like twenty years old. So they're not gonna be worth a ton per plane, but let's assume that each one is worth three hundred thousand dollars. I think they acquired them a couple of, they acquired eight a couple of years ago for about like four hundred thousand dollars a plane. That would be twenty million dollars right off liquidation. But they're not liquidating. They they're they are operating for American. So They have four more years in this contract, but if we got, and right now they're flying 45 of the 64 planes, there's plans to up that to 60 planes, but there's kind of a pilot shortage right now. So they're, they're gradually phasing in more planes. I don't know what they would earn, honestly, when they're operating at capacity, but to provide some context in the last normal year, which was 2019, really, they earned $30 million in earnings before taxes. So, that's an $18 million enterprise value that on a normal year earns $30 million in earnings. Instantly, that's kind of what attracted us to it. They they could potentially earn almost two times their enterprise value in a single year of profits. And they have four more years on the contract. So, I'll kind of leave it there, but it's stuff could go wrong, no doubt. But I think the upside is massive here. If things go well, and I'm not even talking about the arbitration, which is a whole nother deal, um, I, I would say this is kind of the lowest risk scenario: is either they have to liquidate, or they only kind of tread water profitability wise.
1: Okay, I think I'm going to have two questions. Then, first, let's talk the United arbitration. What could that mean for the company?
0: So, I mentioned that they had a previous deal with United at the end of that agreement, it's called the capacity purchase agreement, there were some disputes over how much United owed to uh, Air Wisconsin. That uh, dollar figure that's in dispute is $52 million. So that could be huge for an $18 million enterprise value company. Like if they got all of that, I mean, it's a triple in the EV uh, potentially, or their net cash goes up substantially. Um, but. Who knows? Like there's no way to know who's going to get that money. They've set cash aside as like an accounts receivable and a notes receivable, I think is also included in there as well. Um, but it's not baked into the enterprise value. So my assumption with the $18 million EV is that they get none of that. But obviously, if they get some of that, that's huge. Like, I mean, or even all of it, potentially, who knows?
1: Right. I agree with you. It's a big unknown exactly what's going to happen. Last question on Harvard Diversified. What are your thoughts on the share repurchase program? I am seeing loaded up today. They've taken it down by 21% since the beginning of 2021. I guess, They're yeah, taking are the show's thoughts? outstanding? Yeah.
0: I didn't know it was that high. So I guess the difficulty here is that you'll see sometimes that it's like, they bought their the shares they repurchased were at a significantly higher value than what they uh and I think a lot of that was actually in one transaction if I'm remembering correctly they they bought back a bunch of one but um uh, they'll buy at the price that's above what it typically trades at just because it's you know it's hard to get a whole lot of volume uh doing that and I think they're maxed out at buying 3 million shares a quarter um they haven't done that I like it. It tells me that the management team isn't totally trying to screw shareholders, which is a concern because they don't really talk to anyone. Um, people have tried to reach management, and they just don't say anything. So you kind of have to get you have to guess. Like, are they gonna, you know, screw shareholders over? It doesn't seem like it since they're buying back at least some of the stock. It's not a huge like it's it's nice as kind of a margin of safety, but it's not like the main reason I'd be buying the stock
1: here. Yeah, I think it's nice, and I think it's a big thing to track because once they start generating cash, I wonder exactly what they're going to do with it, and the numbers could get really attractive if they can buy back a decent amount, and then the stock price even starts going up because then they're buying at a significant discount to the liquidation value, and we're really assuming no residual value with the planes. We're assuming nothing with United. Despite that, even if they generate a meager amount of earnings every quarter, Five million dollars, things could get quite attractive. All right. We have two left. And I will say in Harbor Diverse Fed again, don't mess with microcaps unless you have experience. Go read up on how to invest in microcaps. There's a lot of uniqueness compared to just buying a large cap company. So yeah. It's probably the worst idea we have here, but (laughs) it's the it's the highest risk, highest reward because from our end of this you know, how we look at it is it's it's a very opaque microcap, but the chance that it's worth four, five, six dollars a share is is decent. Yeah,
0: let's let's just just remember we're emphasizing the risk here, and we're not recommending anyone to buy it at all. We see how risky it is, but
1: and it hasn't worked so, so far. Some it's it's, it's uh, that's not true. We are
0: up. We're oh, it's underperformed, but we're up like ten percent. Our, That's true. That's true. From our yes. like original purchase price, which is three years ago, so certainly underperformed. But let's talk. uh Let's talk Nintendo, which is your next stock. Give us the elevator pitch here.
1: All right. Yep. I'm looking at the timer. All right. This one is always fun. I think people like to talk Nintendo, and the fact that it's up thirty percent, I think people are gonna enjoy talking about it more. Although it was more attractive when everyone hated it a couple of years ago or a year ago. So. As anyone, everyone knows, or probably most of you listening know, it is one of the largest entertainment companies in the world, focusing on games and specifically both gaming hardware and software. So let's give a quick overview on how the business model works, where their profits come from. So their business model begins with the hardware gaming unit, as a history of not being really cutting edge, but being pretty innovative on their gameplay techniques. You know, you have the Game Boy, you have the Wii, you have the current one with the Switch. That's their bread and butter. Now, importantly. With their latest hardware, they merged the handheld and console units with the Nintendo Switch, which is a hybrid gaming device you can play as a handheld or hooked up to your TV as a console. It is the most popular pure gaming hardware in the world at the moment, selling over 100 million units and counting 122 million active paying, excuse me, playing users that have grown every year for the last six years. So pretty impressive growth in the activity among their customer base and that's one thing that has attracted us is the durable growth of that since the start of the switch but nintendo doesn't make much in profit selling gaming hardware it is all in the vertically integrated uh brands they have for their own gaming studio and publishing house so they have you know every year they'll publish a few games from their own franchises this could be mario this could be zelda this could be animal crossing this could be plenty others making these games exclusive to the gaming hardware i want to go through an example of how important these games can be to their profitability. So, for example, this year they launched Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. The game was the most popular one on the Switch so far this year. They have sold over 20 million units since launch less than a year ago. And assuming the global average selling price was just $50, which might even be a conservative because it went for 70 bucks in the U.S., that is $1 billion in revenue. Rumors are that they hit around breakeven at, I forgot to put that in there, but it's I think two to three million units, let's say three million units. And the key is, when will go through these numbers, is that they don't have any take rate paid to you know, Xbox or any other publishing studio because everything is vertically integrated. So the 17 million extra units are pure profit, which could be in this case, $750 million just from this game to Nintendo so far this year. So why is that important is because this fiscal year, ending in March, they are guiding for around $3 billion in earnings. Now, FX rates, foreign exchange rates can have a big impact here. But, you know, like, uh, how do I say it? It's so important is these single games. And they're still earning, I guess I should say, over the last year, what they've earned during the peak of the pandemic not too far off because of how foreign exchange has kind of given them a major headwind. So what do I think the opportunity is here? What do I think about the entertainment expansion? I'm just kind of asking the questions that I I know listeners were asking anyone online was saying is they were beaten down. Nintendo was due to a concern over declining console sales and whether the next gaming device they release will be a flop like the Wii U. Although I think that sentiment has changed in the last few months. Um, if you read management con- commentary, they're greatly worried about this happening again. And it looks like the next hardware will be a safer, quote unquote, switch to that'll be a similar form factor. Now, with, from my viewpoint, I think Ryan's as well, with online accounts, the subscription service, and an already high active player base, I think Nintendo's hardware business can be more like Sony's going forward and a little bit more consistent. Yes, where will there always be lumps when launching new devices? Yes, but I have a confidence that they can pump out, say, if they don't get too crazy and if it's a similar device just with better graphics, I think they can pump out 20 million units for the next three to four years onto the next Switch releases, which is r- rumored to be happening this year. Now, it is rumored to be happening this year for the last two or three years, so we'll see. But, I mean, eventually, they're going to release something and. That's coming at a time when people are worried about the console hardware, the console cycle going down, and they're still going to sell 15 and a half million units of this first iteration device that is maybe a decade outdated at this point. So they've been quite successful with this. And then the important thing, I guess, is with the gaming hardware, with this new gaming hardware coming into play, they're going to have updated versions of the highly profitable software games. Mario Kart, 3D Mario, Animal Crossing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's important for them to hit these 10 million unit sellers. Now, from a financial perspective, if the new gaming hardware can sell around 20 million units per year, I think they can keep up and grow to around at least $3 billion in annual earnings and likely $4 billion in earnings or more each year going forward. And then this is a complicated business. I will say that. Unlike Harper Diversified, there's a little bit more (laughs) to to, to learn about. But beyond, you know, gaming, Nintendo has actually had a lot of different initiatives that have been quite successful in the last year. So you may have seen the Blockbuster Super Mario movie that did over a billion dollars at the box office or heard of the theme parks they're building with Universal Studios. The important thing with this is that, yes, they can make a decent amount of high margin royalty income here, but the key will be how much they can expand... um, the amount of players who have as they call it access to the nintendo ip and they have a great graphic in their own slide deck that i'm really just stealing i'm just listening to what they're saying they have the gaming console in the middle and on the outside they have theme parks visual content mobile applications merchandise and it all feeds back in to the gaming hardware so they're not necessarily going to make outsized profits from making a movie every three years or from making a mobile app or from having these stores. But they can drive more engaged fans and grow their fan base for the gaming harder, which is where they make a lot of their money. So, I don't know. We have a bunch on valuation here. I mean, maybe you just want to ask questions about valuation because it's a really, really tricky one to value. It's not not a straightforward... Yeah.
0: I guess, what, what do you think they could earn in a year? Like, if you <laughs> looked out two to three years and everything was successful, the, the, the Switch Pro was a huge success, what do, what do you think could potentially be a reasonable earnings figure?
1: Yeah, so this assumption here is that they released the new Mario Kart game, they maybe have another one of the 3D Marios, maybe it's another animal crossing, and those are quite you know successful and they get the switch, the new switch to have just as much success as the old one. I think excluding the entertainment expansions, I think they can earn four billion to five billion dollars a year, but I don't I wouldn't have much confidence it would be that much higher than four billion dollars. For, for an average over a multi year period. Yeah, maybe one year it's higher, but look at what they're going to earn this year with Zelda Tears of the Kingdom just blowing things out of the water. I think the key here is expanding the player base with the other entertainment friend excuse me, other entertainment form factors, visual content, which when I say that, that, I mean movies and TV, and then the theme parks.
0: Are you buying shares today?
1: I am not. I think shares will do well over the next few years, and maybe I can bring it back to why I think they'll do well. So market cap today is actually, given the foreign exchange, it's higher than you'd think. It's at $67 billion. I mean, it used to, not too long ago, it was about 40. Um, But they have $16 billion in cash on the balance sheet or equivalent investments. And they have no debt. So that brings the EV down to $50 billion. So if you assume they can hit $4 billion in USD earnings, I think we're sitting at an EV to earnings of about 12.5. I think that's pretty good. But I don't think it's crazy cheap for a company that's, I would say, I don't have an insane amount of confidence that they're going to keep growing. Or that they'll yeah. grow earnings to five, six, seven billion dollars.
0: I believe, to some degree, that this time is different when it comes to like the whole console cycle, because everyone wants to reference the sweat or the Wii, and I think it's a little bit different. But what if you are wrong? You know, what if it is the same old console cycle? It doesn't feel quite as cheap as it. It feels. Like you're baking in that the Switch Pro is gonna be a success.
1: A little bit. A little bit. I don't think it's baking at everything there at this price. I mean, if they start generating five billion to six billion dollars in earnings a year and they actually start returning it to shareholders, which they will, I think, do once I mean the Japanese government will force them at some point if they get crazy with the percentage of cash in the balance sheet. They've done this with other companies. Yeah, I think returns will be good, but I I, I mean I like coupon. I like Match Group. I like the company you're going to talk about next, Philip Morris. A little bit better at these prices. I I just, given the what I've seen in the earnings, I'm not that confident that the expansions outside of gaming will bring that much to them financially. Because even with that fair. movie, it's been it's been irrelevant. It's been a nice boost to their their non-gaming revenue segment, but. Like that's still it's it's still meaningless if you look at the big picture. Maybe maybe this maybe maybe I'm underestimating the gaming business because when the new Mario Kart comes out, that could be huge. But how much bigger can like a new Switch build their entire gaming business? I'm not exactly sure. So I think the company is still undervalued. I think the shares will do well. I would own this in my portfolio if there was ten stocks I had to own, I would buy shares. I think I think it would be one of the ten. But it's a little different than when it was at an EV of like 30 billion a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah, agreed. All right, let's talk Philip Morris International, my third stock for the day. And the last one we're going to talk about. I'm starting my clock now. It is kind of ironic to say this, but I think Philip Morris, which is one of the oldest publicly traded companies around, Their roots date back to the mid-1800s, will be one of the most surprising growth businesses of the next decade. And I believe Philip Morris, which used to be the same as Altria, it used to be one business altogether until I think 2008 was the split, was the best-performing stock from like 1974 to 2007. It was one of the best-performing stocks during that time period. I don't think it's going to be one of the best performing again, but I think it can have similar kind of volume growth that it had in that in its prime with the cigarettes. So, and that's a little ways out. But let's just kind of break down the business for those that don't know. Right now, Philip Morris International is the world's largest tobacco company. I think I can maybe double check that. Maybe Brett, maybe you could double check that.
1: Well, I think excluding the Chinese one but okay. honestly, it might be British American tobacco. Either way, it's one of the top three outside it's, of China. It's
0: larger than British American. I know that for sure. because um, I was looking at that recently, but the way I look at it is there are two businesses, cigarettes and not cigarettes. That's not the technical definition that they use, but that's kind of how I think about it. There's the cigarettes business and then everything else. So cigarettes, this consists of – it's really quite a, quite a simple business, and I actually like – there's a lot of like qualitative factors that I like about the cigarettes industry um, as an investor. But the basics are you have – in this case, Philip Morris has 53 manufacturing facilities located all around the globe. They source a variety of tobacco leaves, typically from suppliers within their local market. And then they sell through a number of different distribution channels. And the gross margins on the business are typically around high 60% range. So it's a low cost to produce. They are highly addictive. There's lots of pricing power. And there's high barriers to entry in terms of competition because you can't really advertise anymore. So a lot of the incumbents are now insulated in this industry. Some of the popular brands that they have are Marlboro that accounts for 39% of Philip Morris's cigarettes revenue. They also have Parliament, Chesterfield, L&M, Philip Morris and then there's a number of brands in Indonesia and the Philippines. They operate pretty much everywhere except for the US. The US Philip Morris business is called Altria, they sell the Marlboro brand here. They they don't operate here on the cigarette side. There's we're going to talk about the non-cigarettes business uh here in a second, but I guess regarding the cigarettes I think it's okay. I want to buy. I I don't know if I'd be buying the stock purely for the cigarettes business because I think it's better than running a cigarettes business in the US because they're not seeing quite as bad of volume declines. However, they haven't been able to do. Yeah, hop in here.
1: And the pop, I think the key thing people underestimate is they're in markets where the overall population is booming compared to, say, the United States, or I guess they're in Europe as well, or China or something like that where you're in Africa, you're in Southeast Asia, you're in India and you're all these places where the population's booming so if cigarette usage as a percentage of the population is going down they can actually still grow their volumes just because of the population so those areas are growing so quickly right
0: uh so they've seen about like 2% annual volume declines in their cigarettes over the last 3 years I'd say in comparison altria has seen i think like 8 7% 8% uh, volume declines lately in the three, uh, in the last three years or so. So, it's they, they've been in kind of economies and geographies that I think are a little better for the traditional tobacco business. Now let's look at their non-cigarettes portfolio. This is primarily Icos and Zen. So if you haven't heard of these, if you're in America, I'm surprised you haven't heard of Zen, But if you haven't heard of Icos, which to be honest, I hadn't really been familiar with until I looked at Philip Morris. Icos has a number of different styles, but it's basically a pen-shaped device that heats tobacco instead of burning it. So the initial machine costs around $80, depending on the market, and then customers buy the Icos heat sticks, which are basically cigarettes, on a recurring basis, so kind of the razor and blades model. Zinn is the premier nicotine pouch brand in the US, which they acquired in the Swedish match deal, I think about a year and a half ago now, and they tout 70%. Percent plus market share in nicotine pouches in the United States. So, both of those are considered reduced risk products. They, I can't remember what the tag specifically is that they get from the FDA, Zinn specifically, but it's considered a healthier alternative to traditional oral tobacco and traditional cigarettes. So, they've had pretty strong adoption, but really strong adoption over the last decade. You look at Zen's volumes, and it has been absolutely remarkable. You look at Icos's volumes, it's been really stellar as well. Reduced risk products revenue now accounts for 40% of Philip Morris's overall business. Four years ago, it accounted for 20%. So this thing, it's growing quickly. And management has actually said that it's a higher margin business than cigarettes, although there are some costs associated with like a new launch. But it should be margin accretive as they scale. So I know I've gone a little bit long on this pitch here. I'll just get to the numbers. Philip Morris generates about $10 billion in net operating profits after taxes. As the reduced risk portfolio grows and cigarettes continue to at least tread water, I think we can expect potentially 10% annual growth in whatever profit metric you want to use, operating income, free cash flow, no pat. It's... Currently trading EV to operating income is 14.3 times, and they have a dividend yield of 5.8%. So you're getting paid to wait. I think you're getting a sin stock multiple on what will end up being a really strong growth business over the next decade. That's my concluding thought.
1: Okay. And as we will have throughout the newsletter, I will say you have a nice little chart here of a key performance indicator reduced risk products revenue over at Fillmore's International from our friends at finchat.io again thank you for them sponsoring the show i have a question on the potential of reduced risk products growing out of their going out of their original markets so zin going out of the united states icos going out of europe and i think japan but say Ico's going into the United States thoughts on that. Is there more risk there for success than maybe someone bullish like us is underwriting?
0: Yeah. I think if Ico's really took off in the U S Philip Morris would do exceptionally well, but like as the stock, the stock would do well. I'm not sure that it's going to get strong adoption. It's kind of a, like, I just toss my hands up. I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't seem to be priced in. Like, I don't think people, if you're looking at this and you're getting a 6% dividend yield, I don't think people are expecting this to be the next Marlboro within the US. Zin moving outside, I don't know either. I think in both those cases, it's just cherries on top. Like, Velo in Europe is apparently really exceptional and everyone talks about once it moves to the US, it's going to eat Zen's lunch. But I think Zen has phenomenal brand notoriety here in the United States. And people don't even, I've asked before, like, have you tried any other nicotine pouch brands? And they're like, what do you mean other nicotine pouch brands? Like they didn't, they just thought Zen was its own category. They, they don't even think about or consider any of the different alternatives. So I think it'll do well in their existing markets and there's room to run in both. Plus they have good economic characteristics. Like they're very profitable and generating cash in both those businesses. I think Zin's like 50% plus operating margins. Um, it'd be great if they won in additional markets, but I don't
1: think they need to. Okay. And last question on Philip Morris from me Um what do you think of the foreign exchange risk as a U.S. shareholder?: I mean,
0: it, yeah, it's a risk, but it's been hurting them over the last couple uh years as well, and it could also be a tailwind. Who knows? Uh, it hasn't been a tailwind, but I think even if you get even if you shave off two percent revenue growth every year, which would be a pretty bearish scenario for the world or maybe just bullish for America, uh, I think you can still do all right. Plus, the dividend helps here. You get yeah, paid in fair. it. I guess if you're reinvesting it, you don't, but like, you can take some as you go in dollars if you choose not to reinvest the dividend.
1: I guess that's another good question. Are you reinvesting the dividend? And yes. wait, do you own- so, Yes, yeah, um, so I am taking the foreign exchange risk. <laughs> Are you, uh, do you own shares today? I own all shares right. in all say, in all
0: three that I talked about today.
1: All right, beautiful. Yeah, and I will say I own shares of coupon and is that it? Oh, and Harbor Diversified. And I will say that Filtmores went own down. Morris. I don't yet. I was go, uh I was about to say that I think after its earnings drop, it's number one on my watch list at the moment, but kind of hard to tell and i want to ask you out of these stocks or maybe any others what you get you know your paycheck get the extra money that you deposit into your investment account what is the next stock you think you know off the top of your head if you're going to buy it today what what would that one be i know it could change next week but
0: out of these five or others well uh i own an uh, irresponsible amount of Harbor diversified currently. So,
1: it's probably not that.
0: Probably not that. I would. I maybe go coupon at these prices. I I I have bought bought something this morning. Bought Dreamfinders Homes. Uh, but I, I I'm reluctant to recommend that or anything. Uh, the day after I bought it, but that's more of just a starter position. So, I'd say po- possibly coupon.
1: Yeah, and for anyone that's listening, when you're when he means today, it's like a week ago, so don't think you know it's the day. Anything can happen in between now and then. But yeah, for me, I think I think if I didn't have any money in any of these stocks, it would be coupon. But since it's already a large position for me as well, I would go Philip Morris International because I was surprised at the reaction after the earnings report. Although I'm sure there was some number that. They, you know, Wall Street, the big timers were like, uh, you're, you gotta watch this man. It's not, uh, you know, it's not happening, but whatever. Um, I am to say, it's... Even, yeah, I was bullish on the, the reduced risk products, but I'm surprised at how well, even if someone those bullish on these categories, I'm surprised at how well phil Morris has done. And it gives them I... a lot more durability, I think.
0: Yeah, I wonder how much, uh, Zin's performance as of late because their volumes were growing at uh, they were growing really fast prior to the acquisition but they've accelerated since so I wonder how much their acquisition like helped having them as distribution partners.
1: Yeah and there's I think that could help and I think also at the same time the competitors in nicotine pouches stopped heavily discounting so I think that helped as well. All right. I think that's a great way to wrap things up. This was five stocks we'd buy right now. I don't know if we'll replicate this exact title going forward, but we're probably going to be doing something like this a couple times a year, maybe once in earnings season, something like that. Ryan, anything else before we close things out and I hit the disclosure?
0: No, I think that's good. Uh, you're, you're talking next week, right? Or is it an interview? What's our Wednesday episode?
1: We have an interview with lou whiteman on boeing and the state of the aerospace industry i don't know what the title will be probably something trying to be catchy you know what went wrong with boeing is boeing fixable stuff like that and the company impacts so many other businesses out there that i think it is an insightful time and important for anyone that follows anything connected to the airline aerospace industry and then yes the week after i will be doing elf beauty which i'm currently researching all right disclosure we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan, I, or any podcast guest may own securities discussed in this podcast, may have owned them in the past, and may buy, sell, or hold them in the future. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time.